Welcome to the Jesus and Everybody podcast, the show where we talk to every guest about the intersection of Jesus and their life story. My name is Andrew Ironside, and thank you for tuning into the episode this week. Today's guest is our very good friend, someone that I've worked with now for over 13 years here at Capstone Church in Toronto, Ontario, Rob Cripps. You know, there's a passage in the Christian scriptures where the author is writing to his friends in the church, recapping their origin story, and he says this, We loved you so much that we shared with you not only the words of God's good news, but our own lives, our very self. And when I think of the kind of person that Rob is, both as a Christian minister, a mentor, a friend, this is what comes to mind. What I mean is that he speaks about the good news of Jesus to others, and he gives his life in service to God and people. Vocationally, Rob and his wife Becky have worked for more than 20 years in a ministry context, starting up in Huntsville and King City next, and now here in Toronto at Capstone Church as the lead pastor. Rob also has a deep love and knowledge of comics, the Marvel Universe. He's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt and has a very similar humor to me, which has gotten us into all kinds of uncomfortable situations over the years, and I wouldn't change a thing. Outside of his work with the church, Rob has also begun working as a conciliator, journeying with families, couples, churches who are dealing with extreme conflict, walking them towards true reconciliation and peace. I'm so grateful that Rob and his wife Becky have been in our lives these last 13 years, and I'm excited that you get to hear some of his story today. And so without further ado, as part of the Jesus and Everybody podcast, this is Rob Cripps. Welcome, Rob, to the Jesus and Everybody podcast. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on as our guest today. As you know, the show is about discussing the intersection of Jesus and our life story, and often that starts in people's childhood or their upbringing. So I'll just ask you to jump right in, Rob, and talk. What was your childhood like, and what place did faith have to play, if at all? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting after having spoken to you and you've invited me on here and listened to some of your other podcasts. I, I don't often reflect back on childhood maybe as much as I should. And I think in some ways I look back and, um, you know, pull and draw from all the uh, awesome times. I mean, honestly, growing up in the 80s, it was a free for all and, and, and a lot of fun in a lot of ways. You know, things that we did then are, are certainly deemed unsafe now. So had a lot of fun growing up, a lot of good memories. Basically, as a kid with very little rules and boundaries, I would wake up as early as I could when school wasn't on, go to my friend's house as early as their parents would tolerate, and then basically stay out as long as I could until my friend's parents wouldn't let them stay out any longer. Then I'd go inside and uh, have a lot of real positive memories uh, around that aspect. Saturday morning cartoons, sugar cereal, all the good stuff of the 80s. But it, it's also interesting to look back and just see some of the challenges that existed that maybe didn't realize were, were challenging. Grew up in a Christian home by, by title and uh, went to church regularly, but I don't think really had a deep understanding of what that meant or even why we did it apart from Christian tradition. And, you know, my, my church was something that I can always remember. I've got one of those classic stories where apparently I became a Christian when I was three and I don't want to say apparently to disrespect anybody, uh, my sisters or parents that, that led me in that direction. But 
what a three-year-old can cognitively know and what I remember of it is, is absolutely nothing. So, you know, I grew up being told I was a Christian, I guess, um, in that sense, but had no real memory or experience of what that meant. In my home, there was a, a lot of conflict early on. And I remember that I became a peacemaker in my home. From the age of seven, I can remember mediating arguments between my parents. Later on, it was arguments between my, my mom and my sisters. And they weren't good ones. They, they were pretty escalated and, and pretty heated. And so I learned some tips early on in life, how to either avoid conflict, manage it, or make people feel better. People talk about humor as a, as a coping mechanism. And, and I absolutely think that's true. And I don't think that's a negative necessarily, but I learned to make jokes and use humor a lot growing up to deescalate situations, uh, but it didn't always work. And so, yeah, when I, when I look back, there was a lot of, lot of fighting, a lot of conflict, um, and at the same time, a lot of love. I, I know that my family deeply loved me and I deeply love them, but it certainly uh, came with a few scars, a uh, few, few memories of, of really long nights as a, as a kid, mediating arguments between adults or, or um, soon to be adults with my teenage sisters. I'm the youngest of three. They're five years old and seven years old, uh, older than me. Yeah, so my, my position of, in life was, was peacemaker early on and, uh, and joker as much as I could be to try to make sure that those situations were as, as good as they should be. Something that we talk about quite a bit is reaching out to people who have mental health issues and, and illnesses. And I absolutely agree with that and support that we need to support those who are mentally ill. What we don't talk about nearly enough, in my opinion, is how do we support families that grow up in a culture or, or a home where one or more members of that family have a mental illness. Mm. So I watched as my mom had her own struggles with depression and mental illnesses that, that often led to some kind of escalated reality in our home. So that, that's my, my early years. It was around grade six, though, that I remember um, it got so bad that both my sisters left. And oddly enough, that became a real peaceful time for me. My parents worked shift work, so they would leave at like 4.30 in the morning. They were hardworking bus drivers. They drove city transit, and so they'd get up at 4.30. I'd never saw them in the morning. Uh, I'd wake up in grade six and get my own breakfast, go to school. Uh, my dad always made lunches, and the lunches were bizarre lunches. They were the kind of lunches that you know, I'd have to kind of secretly eat. It would be like a whole cucumber. Sometimes he just cut a hot dog in half and put it on two slices of bread. Uh, sometimes it would be a big clump of jam, but he always made them. And I love that about him. He always mm. made the lunches, even though they were weird and I had to eat them secretly to make sure that I didn't get uh, noticed. But I'd go to school, have lunch, come home. And then my parents, because it's shift work, would come home between the hours of like 12 and three in the afternoon. And so by the time I got home, they were gone again until eight at night. So I, I basically from grade six, seven onward up until I left the house, uh, spent a lot of time on my own. And uh, some people might see that as, as sad or uh, lonely. I, I loved it. I had all kinds of freedom. I had no accountability at the time. I thought that was a good thing was a pretty good kid. So I didn't make a lot of stupid mistakes except for school. That's another situation, but 
yeah, most of, most of that time growing up was really on my own. And that's when I think the church really stepped in for me. Uh, it was my, in my grade nine year, uh, my best friend, Brent, uh, one of my best friends, Brent, uh, basically his family adopted me for a year. So in grade nine, I ate almost every single meal with the Murphys. And the Murphys are a special family to me because of, of that and slept over most nights at the Murphy house, which, you know, when you think back to who would, <laughs> who would let their kids sleep over at their friend's house on a school night? Well, I did probably four of the seven nights uh, of the week, I would sleep at the Murphy's. They even kind of set up a temporary bed for me in grade nine. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like we had a conversation about it. It's not like my parents spoke to, to his parents. No contracts signed. No contracts. Yeah, there was no out for them. The poor Murphy family, they were just stuck with me. And every <laughs> dinner I would show up and sit at their table. And then my friend Brent was really mouthy at the time. He would say something inappropriate. His dad would kick him out of the table. And I'd sit there with the Murphy family just kind of awkwardly for the rest of the meal. <laughs> That's great. And, and, <laughs> and that was that was grade nine for me. And, and so to this day, they're a very dear family and really taught me uh, what the dinner table looks like. And, and they were from my, uh, my home church, Victory Baptist. It was there that I really started to discover uh, what faith could look like in practice. It's where I learned hard work, where I learned to study God, and it's, it's where I learned to love Jesus through the youth ministry that took place there. Thanks for sharing that, Rob. And I don't want to fast forward too much because there may be something in between. If there is, let me know. But I know that you ended up at Camp Wajidwin, uh, connected with Summit College. What what led you to that next chapter and what influence did that have in your life? Yeah, you know what? I, I think what led me there was a new start. The draw and the appeal was I wanted to go somewhere where no one knew my history. Um, that's quite honestly the truth is I wanted somebody that wasn't going to judge me for my my academics, something I don't share very often. I'm actually not a high school graduate, which will come up a little bit later as something that I think is funny based on where God has led me down the academic path. But I didn't graduate high school. I was in general, uh, which back in the day was kind of the, the college route, but I was failing courses. I was in and out of special education. They couldn't quite figure out what to do with me. But youth group was always a safe, safe place for me. But it was in my uh, grade 12 year that everybody that I knew in my youth group decided to uh, basically walk away from their faith, get into the party scene. And I just didn't have a clear conscience on that. And so I stayed true to the course and ended up feeling very lonely and very isolated as, as one of the few that didn't follow that route. And so the friends that I had known all through high school stopped calling, uh, stopped inviting me. I think, Andrew, to be honest, I think I made them feel guilty. And there's mm. probably a part of me that was judgmental. And so, you know, those, those invitations stopped coming. And I just thought, you know, I want to go somewhere and rebrand. You know, we didn't talk about rebranding then. We didn't know what it meant. But I wanted to go do a rebrand. And so I found Wajidwin. And, you know, my family had been around that camp for years. My grandpa was really big there. And my grandpa is a, was somebody I really loved and respected very godly man. And, and he always helped out at NBC and Camp Wajidwin was big. So I decided, well, I might as well apply because no one else I know is going there. And that's ultimately how I landed at Wajidwin. I wanted to go somewhere where no one else knew me and I could uh, kind of start fresh without any kind of familial baggage, 
or even friendship baggage that I was trying to either run from, or I'm, I'm not quite sure. I, I wouldn't say that God just inspired me to go as much as it was. I just wanted a clean start. Can you speak to that, that idea? You, you said all your friends or, or quite a few of them kind of leaving the youth group, going into the party scene. I think a lot of people who listen, who are not religious, they hear that and they say, well, that's like, that's normal. Like that's what high school kids do is they, they got to have fun and learn and partying is part of that. Uh, what was it for you that kept you from getting involved with that? And how do you, even looking back, how do you think on that? Cause they are just kids, right? I mean, teenagers are kids. Yeah. Um, and yet those decisions are important. So how do you reflect on those situations? Yeah. Teenagers are kids looking back, but when you're in it, it doesn't feel that way. Right. And, and the decisions that were starting to be made were very adult type decisions. And I think I started to watch even as their lives uh, became less fulfilled and, and the temporal joy that they were looking for was something that didn't make sense to me. And, and, you know, Andrew, it's something that, that I've wrestled with or thought about a few times, like, you know, God, what was it that stopped me? because I could have jumped in with everybody else. Literally, there was about 30 of us. And by the time it was over, yeah, I was very much alone with a couple others that weren't even close friends that decided not to go that path. I think ultimately I, I had this strong sense of conviction that I believe was from God and this deep desire to please, you know, some of the adults in my life. My youth pastor became a huge role model for me, huge mm -hmm. role model. Uh, one of the reasons why when I was like 15 years old, and I know Becky shared it with you, but I was 15 when I knew I wanted to be a pastor, which is a little bit weird. Like when you think about yeah, yeah. You know, what, what are 15 year old boys dreaming about? Well, you know what? One day I want to teach people about Jesus. Mm. But, but it was just this, the strong conviction that I had from a very early age that I wanted to try to do what was right and follow what I believed was God's will for me. And at the same time, I know I made a lot of errors in, in my attitude towards my friends and, and was probably judgmental. I don't blame them for not calling me. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I appreciate you sharing that. I like what you said, how in the moment you, you do feel like you're old, you are making decisions that actually have quite a bit of impact on the course of your life. And generally, you can tell that the choices people make at that age do lead into the next. And, and I'm not getting at that everyone who drinks a beer in high school is going mm -hmm. down a bad road. But there just certainly is something to that adage of, you know, the crowd that you're surrounded with does influence you. Um, which sounds like an old person thing to say, but <laughs> I was an old person at a very young age, though, Andrew, yeah. I was pretty old, pretty young. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing that. And so can you talk a little bit more about Camp Legitimate? How old were you then when you ended up there? And what began to happen in your heart? Just what was God teaching you about community and, and friendship and laughter and fun? And how did that yeah. influence your life? You know what, the biggest thing that happened for me, I think I went up and I wasn't, you know, in my rebrand, I don't know what I thought I wanted to be, but I knew I wanted to be cool. I, I knew I didn't want to be kind of the the odd kid or the, um, the weird family kid, um, you know, growing up at, at church, we were the family that got the turkey, you know, at, at Thanksgiving. And, and I just wanted to be in the upper echelon of whatever cool might be. And so when I first got there, I think I, I had the wrong idea of what I wanted to do, but it didn't take long for that to just get shattered because it was about three days in 
I was driving with the director, his name was Bear at that time, Don Ballantyne, who is another very special person to me. And I was just making jokes because that's what I do. I like to joke. And, and he started laughing and we were going into town. He's like, sit in the front with me. And so I sat in the front with him. And for the first time, I had this feeling like, I think somebody sees something in me. Hmm. You know, I, I think somebody sees something special from from the weird kid or 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 the dumb kid that just we can't figure out what class he should be in um or you know the odd kid at church because we know his family is a little bit odd and a little bit different and and when he did that it's such a small thing but it was so huge for me that it was midweek of the first training week i thought they see something in me and and my youth pastor and youth leaders, if they're listening, they, they saw something in me too, but I don't think I saw it yet in myself. But I remember Don seeing something in me and I thought, I, I, I want to I make this guy happy. Um, I, I want to I impress him. And so I'm going to work extra hard to try to do those things. Now, slowly those became more mature motivations. But at the first, that's probably what it was. Is like, if he sees something in me, I, I really want to show him what I got and I don't want to disappoint it. And it was just, you know what, camp, it allowed me to lead. It allowed me to lead at a young age. It allowed me to fail. And because it was in such a, a context of a community that was gracious with one another, that gave opportunity when we bombed, we all bombed together and it became, you know, next week's joke, um, which again, humor is, is big for me. And I was, I'm always okay with being able to look back and laugh, but yeah, it camp camp saw something in me and invested in me. And it was because I met a couple of older staff members, they said, Hey, why don't you come to Bible college with us? You can live with us at our house and, and start moving towards being a youth pastor. I'm like, well, I don't have my high school education. They're like, ah, don't worry about it. It's Bible college. And so I actually <laughs> technically, I technically snuck into Bible college and, and that's another story, but yeah, it, it, it seemed to work out. So it was just this amazing time to develop as a leader. That's awesome. And can you talk about the Bible College Summit College, because you, you not only attended there, but you went on to be a staff member. What part did that have in your formation? Uh, it was it was huge. It's where I really discovered what community meant. I, I, I went there for my second year of Bible College. Um, my first year was at Heritage Baptist College, and I really did really badly there. I followed the same patterns that I'd learned or not learned all my high school career, failed uh, half my courses, and basically realized that's an expensive way to learn by paying for courses you don't pass. And I remember going into my second year at Summit, I just prayed, this is a very clear prayer for me. I said, God, I feel like you want me to be a pastor. I felt like you've wanted me to be a pastor for years, but I'm too stupid. Uh, I'm, I'm too dumb. And so if you want me to do this thing, you better fix something for me because I, I just can't do it without you. It was a real turnaround point for me. And the shift that took place from that prayer on, um, and I'm, I'm not saying this to in any way draw attention to myself, but that prayer was an identifiable moment uh, where after it, I haven't gotten anything lower than 80% in any of my education since. Mm. And I really do think that God did a work. Now, maybe it was in there already, but he woke it up and uh, put a real passion for learning. And, and in the context that we were learning, which was Summit College and Outdoor Pursuits College, I was built for that you know, like the adventure, the excitement, the freedom. 
and the study to see God in creation, not just in theory, but to, to be able to look out into your surroundings and actually see God at work in his creation was, was really life-changing for me. And to do it with a bunch of other people that maybe didn't fit in the regular context either. Hmm. Yeah, it is a special place. Camp is in the same boat for me. It just, cause, and I'll say this by putting myself in it. It's full of weird people. And, yes, and, yes. and, and I think Becky said this very well when she was on just the, the idea of safety, right? Just that you, people feel like they belong and, and how significant that is for everyone to feel like they have a place where they're cherished, where they, where they belong, where, yeah, you could just laugh and be stupid, but also there's a depth there that, and, and that depth I think is realized or comes out because you feel safe, right? There's something to a child, a youth, an adult feeling safe that allows them to flourish and to grow. And I, I reflect on my time at, at Summit College and, and Wajitawin as well as being those kinds of places where you just felt you could be yourself. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I'd be remiss to not mention that that's also where Becky and I met. So um, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, it is know. a pretty big deal. Pretty big uh, deal. It is. Yes. Now, as a bit of an aside here, that's also where you and I met some years later. And <laughs> uh, I wonder if you could touch on how you and I first got connected there at Camp Wajidwin. And I believe it was something about how you, you said, like, oh, this guy's a really cool person. I should get to know him. But I'll let you explain. In yeah, your it's, some, it's something along those lines, slightly different, um, <laughs> but pretty close. Yeah, I was camp pastoring at Wajidawin a number of years later. And Andrew's camp name is Nemo, if anybody's listening and didn't know that. And named after a fish, I think. And, sure. and I was doing chapel one night. And I don't remember what I was speaking on, but I, I remember where I was speaking from. And it was the book of Luke. And the next day, a young Andrew Ironside comes up to me and says, I like what you had to say last night, but you got it wrong. And uh, I said, oh, okay, well, you know, you have an opportunity to enlighten me. And so Andrew goes on to, to do this great exposition and this uh, detailed retelling of the story and what it really means. And I, I let him finish. And then when he was finished, I said, well, Andrew, you missed something pretty important. Y you're, you're showing me this passage from the book of Matthew, but last night I preached from the book of Luke. Mm. And, uh, and that's how we met with Andrew trying to correct me from the wrong book. And it's kind <laughs> of lasted for the last, you know, 15 years of knowing each other. That's right. Um, but, but there is something I want to say for anybody that's listening. I respected you very much for it because even at that age, you were in such pursuit of truth that you're willing to go and confront someone that was older that you barely knew uh, because you thought they got it wrong. Right. Now, it was, I was happy to be right that time, but there are <laughs> other times, very few, that, that I was wrong and, and you've been right, but we won't talk about that today. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate that. Um, so talk about then your time at a camp, a summer college, and, and then you began working uh, at a church as a youth pastor. And then if you could from there talk about the move to the city as well yeah yeah and, and i'll fast track through a, a bit of this but basically i knew that the college was a temporary stop and wasn't wasn't what god was calling me to do or at least i didn't feel like it was what god was calling me to do long term and i always had the church in mind and again that's because of the investment that the church put into me in my teen years where i was kind of just raised by the church in some ways, uh, respected my youth pastor like crazy. The youth workers, youth leaders were just 
people I really admired. And I, I knew that I wanted to be in a church context. And so when Becky and I met and got engaged, I, I don't know if she shared this, but I think it was like our first date. And I said, because she did mention a couple of times that I'm serious and, 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 and I have a tendency to be serious, but that actually didn't first... resonate with me, to be honest. <laughs> it depends on, depends on who's speaking. But yes. She, she knows a side of me that I'm sure a lot of people don't know, but she, you know, she knows that I can be serious. And I think I set the tone for that in our very first date. I said, Becky, I want to tell you something. I just want to get this up front. I have full intention of being a pastor. I'm going to go into ministry. I'm going to work in the church. I'm not going to make a lot of money. So you, you kind of need to make a decision whether or not you want to enter into this relationship or not with that knowledge. And <laughs> she's what, 18? Um, and I'm, I'm making her make lifelong decisions on our first date. But I will say something. I, I knew I was going to marry her. So I figured the answer was going to be yes, that she was fine with it. And it was, thankfully. So yeah, I always knew that I was going to go into ministry, into a church context. And so it was Don Ballantyne, the same camp director, who called me up one day. I had put out several resumes. Andrew, this is actually funny. I handed at least two resumes out that I remember plainly being handed back to me because they didn't want me to waste the paper. <laughs> this is legit. This is legit. They're, they're like, you know... Uh, yeah, you keep pursuing. Um, you're, you're not a fit. Like I haven't even talked to them yet. And they're passing me back the paper. I'm like, well, I, I didn't have a lot of money. So I guess that's I amazing. Yeah. The, the five cents, um, that five cents was far more important than my dignity. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I had twice at least yeah, not even a take and say, thanks. We'll consider this just, no, 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 thanks. Like, it, they were one step short of ripping it up in front of me. But Don, who I met through camp, actually approached me. He's like, I know you want to do this. Uh, we got a spot. And would you come to King City? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. But I got nowhere else to go. Really no other options. And I went there and loved, loved, loved my job, loved my church. That's where I started my family. Becky and I were only married a few months when we went there. So we were, we were young. And Jackson came not, not long after. So we're figuring out life in this church community and just absolutely loved it. Loved youth ministry, never thought I wanted to leave, but ultimately God had, had different things planned for us. And, um, you know, my wife has always been my biggest fan and I'm so thankful for that. She started to see something in me that I didn't see, which is a, a bit of a common theme for me as well. And she saw that I was starting to develop a gift and a passion for teaching and, and leadership. And so we started to talk about what that might look like, while at the same time, our church got into a major, major conflict. Like it, it was, it was bad. And because we love the people so much, we really wanted to try to see it through. And ultimately, we weren't able to see that through. And we watched a, a church begin to turn on itself that people one Sunday who were doing communion together are now pointing at each other and, and name calling virtually in, in church meetings. Yeah. And it was, it was ugly. Andrew, it was one of the ugliest things I've ever seen. And I remember we called up our denomination at the time and pastor Werner Peters, who some people would know they're listening to this and Bud Penner, who was the acting president at the time came to work with us and uh, weren't able to really resolve any conflict, but 
clearly God was doing something that I didn't really understand at that time by allowing me to meet Pastor Werner in that context, because that will come up a little bit later on. And the church began to fall apart. And so we knew that it was our time to go, that we had waited through about three years of conflict. And we finally thought it's, it's time, it's time for us to go. And I'll save the story because Becky told it. We also had this developing passion for at-risk youth. You know, we felt like our, our suburban youth were being ministered, that we could find someone to, to continue to minister to them there. But we are starting to develop this real passion for high-risk, at-risk youth and, and marginalized youth. And so we knew we wanted it to, to be in the city and we wanted it to be a church plant. And so we started to apply to different places and Andrew, it happened all over again, like got a couple of interviews, but the interviews were, I could tell they were like due diligence so that they could go back and say, we interviewed five people <laughs> here. Let's, let's take care of the ones that clearly aren't candidates. And that was often me. And a lot of it had to do with my education because I hadn't even finished now. I didn't have my high school, but I didn't have to really talk about that. And I didn't have a complete undergraduate yet. I hadn't finished my BA. And that really was something that came up to make it hard to even get an interview. And I applied to this one church that was a church plant called the Summit Church at the time. And I remember clearly getting a letter in the mail that said, thank you for your application. Um, we're going a different route. And I thought, okay, well, maybe this church that I'm at is the church that I'm staying at. And so I kind of just said, all right, God, you, you move me when you're ready to move me. I think it was eight months later, I got a call from Steve Reichenbach, who was the chair of the search committee. And he didn't say it this way, but this is my interpretation and how I recall it. It went something along the lines of, we've tried everybody else. <laughs> we got to the bottom twice and, and yours is the only one left that we haven't met with. And, and uh, what had happened was Werner Peters was the pastor at Westmount Park Church, and he was the one that was overseeing the Summit Church plant. And after he had gone through all the applications, he went back to Bud Penner, and Bud said, do you remember that kid from King City? He's like, yeah, well, you should give him a chance. So I met Werner before I met Werner, and I came down and met, and it was just one of those hand in glove kind of fits mm. uh, the philosophy of the church, their desire for community and outreach, their heart for the poor, everything matched up. And so we, uh, yeah, we packed our bags and came to the city. That's amazing. And we don't have, I mean, we could do a whole podcast just about your time, even those early years of what it means to be a pastor of a small church in the city, you know, showing up on a Sunday with 10, five, 10, 15 people. Yep. 20 yep. on a good week. And, but I did want to ask, as you began that journey, eventually the two came back together to, to be what is now Capstone Church. But um, transitioning from working in youth ministry, did you see a difference in your own heart uh, becoming more of a lead pastor of a church? You know, I think sometimes we have experiences that mark uh, a moment of difference. And then sometimes we grow into it and we didn't know that we did. And that would probably be my story more is that I just kind of grew up with the church and the church did take a chance. I mean, I was 30 years old when I came to then summit to go lead a bunch of 40 year olds primarily at the time. And, and who does that and who allows that, but they saw something in me and gave me an opportunity to lead. And so I think in many ways, 
by growing up with a church plant, I became a leader. I didn't start there necessarily. I maybe had some attributes and qualities that, that they saw, but I certainly had so much to learn and uh, to grow in. And so I, in, I think that really I grew up with this church and they watched me grow up. And I often go back to that um, exhortation from Paul to Timothy, Timothy uh, let them see your progress. Mm. And that's made me passionate about doing the same thing for others. You know, I want to see their progress. I don't want to see their completion. You know, by then they should be taken over. I should be stepping out. I want to see their progress. And, uh, and I was just so thankful that they allowed me to progress into my pastoral giftings rather than looking for someone that had already arrived at them. Mm. I want to give you a chance, I guess, to brag about the church, our church here, Capstone, and how there was so much grace afforded to you. Um, I've heard you say that that's not common in a lot of other church contexts, some, but not a lot. So maybe just say a few things about Capstone. Why, why have you stayed? It's been over 13 years now. What has kept you here all along? You know, one, I would say that obviously God has orchestrated this and I recognize his hand in it. And there's been several points along the way where I've obviously uh, taken time to reevaluate and question whether I should go. But then every time I do, God draws me back to just the deep love and it's a mutual love that I have for my church and that my church has for me. And that love has really been the marker through these 13 years that have motivated me to stay. Because if we love one each, uh, each other enough, then like John 13 says, the evidence of that is our mission. Like when people look at this church, I want them to look at this church and go, that's strange love. Like they they love each other and, and they want to be together and they want to, you know, exist in community. They want to get it wrong and messy and then reconcile and, and, and move forward together. And so I think the biggest thing that's kept me at Capstone for 13 years is I'm, I'm entirely and fully convinced that I'm loved. And at the same time, as I search my own heart, I'm entirely and fully convinced that I love them back. Mm. There may be a day that God calls me somewhere else to something else. I'm not sure. But it would be a very hard um, picture for me to imagine trying to rediscover that kind of love because of how, how deeply we care for one another at Capstone. And, and I know that sounds idealistic and, oh, yeah, you know what? That's just a, a story from a, a pastor. Right, and pastors right. always tell bigger stories. Man, when, you get to, when, you're, when you're at a church long enough, and I don't think a lot of pastors get to experience this because they... They, they don't always stay long enough, and, and there's a variety of reasons, and I'm not here to judge those reasons. But when you get to, you know, lead people to Christ, baptize them, marry them, uh, dedicate their babies, watch their kids grow up, and, and then start to disciple their children, you know, 13 years is a, a span of time. It's, it's really family in mm. that sense, and it's very special. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Rob. And, and interesting, like hints of feeling loved and again belonging. How that those themes run through so much of camp too, and other yeah. contexts where that it's something I've just been processing a lot, even this year with COVID, because we're we're not able to to be in community the same way we were. But clearly, there's something in us that craves, that longs for places where we feel that way, where we feel yeah. loved, where we feel supported. And like you said, not 
it, it, it can sound idealistic. Some people might be inspired and moved as you share that and feel warm and fuzzy, but it is hard. Like a lot of days it sucks in hard community, work. but hard work. But I like the word you said there, family. And even earlier on, you mentioned something of a, of a table too with the Murphys and the, the value of that. Can you just expand a little bit more on what you believe is the heart of God for family as the church? Yeah, when we think of family and, and why the church is called family, because Paul uses that language quite a bit, uh, especially in Corinthians where they're all kinds of dysfunctional. You know, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, where it talks about, you know, why are you bringing each other to court? Shouldn't you go to the family? Shouldn't you go to the oikos or the household? What he's saying is we have deeper accountability. Not that it's all clean and good. It's that it's the complete picture. So that means when we need to be encouraged, we are encouraged and encourage others. When we need to be reprimanded and put into place, family does that too. When we need to be forgiven, family is forgiving. And it's messy, you know, like when, when I look at the cross section of people that are at Capstone, no other context that I can think of in a social setting would have this group of people there. Mm. Like when you think about a family reunion and you go, okay, well, there's the weird part of the family, which was always my side of the family. You know, there's the weird <laughs> side of the family. Um, there's the well-off side of the family that people look to and go, oh yeah, they did really well. Um, there's the fun side. That's church. You know, like it's a weird family reunion, but it's family and, and you look forward to it because even in its oddities and even when we hurt each other, like this is the thing, Andrew, I look back and I know a lot of people have been hurt by the church and I don't disqualify that I've seen it. And I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I've been burned by the church and I don't disqualify. See, I've seen that and I've experienced that too. But at the end of the day, I think I have as much, I guess, if you want to call it right to say, you know what? The church did me bad. The church did me wrong. I got to see the evils of a church split and the ugliness of people hurting me and all those things. But I, I see more hope that if we're willing to work with those people that even cause us harm in a church context, uh, I'm not talking about being unsafe or, or putting yourself into a position where you shouldn't be put into, but I'm talking about when people hurt us. Well, family hurts us all the time. They're still family. And so you got to figure out what to do with that. You can either leave it or you could be a part of it. And that's what I, I do appreciate about Capstone is it hasn't been entirely smooth. We've hurt each other. I've hurt people. They've hurt me. Uh, but those are my brothers and sisters and we're going to sit down and figure it out. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that in just a few minutes. We'll touch on or, or kind of transition into the conversation around conciliation and, and all that work as well. But before getting there, I wanted to ask, you talked about the mix of people, the, the diversity, even the increasing diversity as a church in the city, um, in terms of cultural backgrounds and practice within a church context. What does it mean to be a pastor to stand at the front, well, well pre-COVID and post-COVID, hopefully soon, where you look out and you do see all these different family members? How do you even begin to speak from the bible when there is such a different group of, of education of background of uh, maybe trauma of personal struggle some people are celebrating that morning and some people are mourning the death of a loved one how do you how do you do that as a pastor yeah i'm uh, you know every week i have two basic rules that i develop for myself and uh, these are my own principles that i developed a, a number of years back so that any sermon that i'm delivering 
there's these two rules that I follow. The first is in, in the book of Luke, Jesus is preaching all through the, the second half of the book of Luke. And when he's preaching, he's often preaching to one group, but there's two other groups that are also listening. And so I've kind of developed this little uh, way of, of outlining that by identifying the three groups. And the three groups are uh, all who are weary, are you still so dull, and woe to you. And the all who are weary are the poor, those who have come, the, those who are sick, those who are marginalized, those who are outcast. And sometimes Jesus would speak to the all who are weary. But while Jesus is speaking to the all who are weary, the other two groups were still there. It's not like Jesus went to a different hill and said, okay, now I'm going to pull aside the marginalized people and right. speak to them. And then I'm going to go back and I'm going to talk to the, the rich people who are abusing their power. And then I'm going to go talk to my disciples about what I said to those groups. No, they were all there in the same setting. And so what he did is he spoke to the all who are weary and what he said in gentleness to that group became an indictment to the woe to use. As he spoke to them with tenderness, he's also indicting those who are not acting that way towards them. But at the same time, he's speaking to the all, uh, are you still so dull? His, his disciples, you know, and that's typically where I place myself. Are you still so dull? The, the ones who didn't get it yet. And he's teaching them about what it is to care for the marginalized. So whenever I preach a sermon, I ask, who's my primary audience of those three? And I'll speak to that primary audience and then make sure I understand that other people are listening in. Mm -hmm. So you might speak to somebody uh, joyfully and know that someone else is hurting. And that's hard, you know, to be hurting at church when so much of our music is geared around feeling a certain way or celebrating or whatever it might be. But at the same time, it's good for them to be there so that they can know that there is a joy that is available to them. And at the same time, I want to speak to those who lament. And I, you know me, Andrew, I'm angsty and I preach a lot of lament and I'm, I'm not afraid of, of the topic of suffering. And so to speak to that, you're also speaking to those who maybe are in that joy-filled place that they need to have compassion and understanding for those who aren't. Mm -hmm. um, so that's my first rule. And my second rule is the rule of assumption. I just kind of go through a checklist to make sure that I'm sensitive to what other people might be hearing. And so I ask myself, I basically tell myself, someone who's going to hear this sermon is wrestling with their sexuality and gender. Someone who's going to hear this sermon has had an abortion. Someone who, or, or thinking about it, someone who's listening to the sermon today is in a marriage that has fallen apart. Someone's listening to this and their job isn't going to be there tomorrow. So how am I going to speak to, um, to them in such a way as to point them towards the good news of Christ while at the same time doing my best to avoid this righteous indignation and a self-righteous approach to preaching. So it is a real challenge and I'm, I get it wrong often. Uh, but those are some of the principles that I try to use to guide me. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. One more question around the church capstone. Again, I know has given you so much freedom, not only to serve within the church context, but also to use your time in, in the community as it were to be outside of the, the four walls of the building and serving. Um, I think of your time, at the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu gym training, becoming a black belt there. Uh, but but I know for you, and I want you to speak to this, it's, yes, obviously it's great to pursue that black belt, but it's it's ministry. And I wonder if you could speak to this idea, because the reality is everyone listening, with the exception of a handful, don't work in a church. 
And one of the things that you hear, I hear a lot, even still, is people say, well, like you're the pastor, like you work for the church or for Youth Unlimited. And so you're the person doing ministry, but like, I, I feel kind of useless verbatim. I hear that all the time. So what, what has God taught you about ministry outside of the walls of the church? So ministry outside of the walls of the church, I think pastors, you know, if we wanted to, Andrew, we could never come, we, we could avoid coming into contact with someone who believes someone, something different if we really wanted to. And actually it's quite easy. And I do see it where, you know, you get so focused on the church that you forget that the purpose of the church is mission. You know, one of the, one of the purposes or one of the primary purposes of the church is mission. And so, you know, if there are pastors that are listening, that are spending too much time in their office, they got to get out. Um, You got to find communities where you can be living out the faith that you're calling people to live out. And I think it would be quite unfair for me to have expectations or to charge our people with some form of action if I'm not at the same time trying to live it out in a very real and practical way. And so from the beginning, I've worked at establishing community outside of the church, uh, both in my own neighborhood, like you said, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I've trained 13 years, did some programs with Toronto BJJ and a shout out to Toronto BJJ, just a huge heart for community there uh, with Josh and George and, and Nacho and others. But to do that in partnership with them, not just always in partnership with, you know, Capstone is so critically important because then the message is matched with a certain relevance. I'm not just, you know, instructing people to live a certain way. I'm doing my best to seek it out as well. And you know what? I'm just as scared as anyone else. I feel just as inadequate as everybody else. And yeah, I hear it all the time. Like, yeah, you know, you're a pastor. You've, you you know, you're ready to do this and I'm not ready to do this. And man, I, I don't see Jesus calling a whole lot of complete people to ministry. Look at his disciples. That was a mistake, wasn't it? You know, going and choosing those guys that, that were just so underqualified to the, the, the women that followed Jesus. That was a, a mistake. They were under underqualified as well. I mean, Jesus calls the underqualified. If we were ready, why would we need them? If we got it right every time, why would we need to learn or listen? So I, I think being called outside of the church is so important for pastors to make sure that they're they're practicing what they preach i mean that's what you hear right make sure Mm -hmm. you practice what you preach and i think that's really really true of of those in ministry so i i love opportunities to get outside of the church and something you know one of the other answers why why stay at capstone for 13 years because they let me do it and not only do they let me do it if i didn't do it i'd probably get challenged and i really appreciate that right that brings to mind a video I saw recently, Tim Coles, who's the national director of Youth for Christ Canada, Youth Unlimited. He shared a video of a, I think it was an American preacher who, who went and worked in a small town parish in Scotland. And he shows up and it's obviously very different than like an American context. And he, he gets there and he, he meets with one of the, the board members and says, okay, like, where's my office? Where's like, where's my study? And, and the guy kind of looks at him strange and, and he said, we don't really have, you don't really have an, like you can use this little desk here, but your office is out there. And he points out the window to the, to the street points to the neighborhood. 
and over the, the coming years, the man tells of how he, yeah, yes, obviously he's spending time reading and studying to prepare the message, but most of his reading and preparing for the message was by going and knocking on the doors of, of the people in this small village and getting to know them and coming in and having tea with them and learning mourning with some and, and praying with others and laughing. And uh, I just thought that was such a beautiful picture. And obviously this is Toronto. So we, we, you probably get in trouble knocking on everyone's door. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> answered, that's for sure. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, you're right. But uh, yeah, just as you were sharing that, that came to mind, just, I think there's something to that of, and, and we're all wired differently for sure. Like people, there are different giftings and personalities. So I'm not here to say everyone has to do this, but uh, just I've seen that in your life and Becky, that intentionality of just being a good neighbor of, and, and not just, and it's not even, I guess going a step further, it's not even just, well, you guys are going to like bless other people. That's part of it. You're actually there. You're learning you're, by being a part of the neighborhood. You equally are being taught by your neighbors about life, even about God, even though they're not always religious. Right. Can you speak to that? Just what it means to be in the neighborhood, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think if, I think if your attitude is that I'm going to go bless this neighborhood, it's a little bit arrogant. Certainly we have things that we can contribute to the neighborhood and we should be seeking to serve it and to bless it. No doubt. But if, if that's your attitude, you're going to be surprised very quickly on because the reception that you have, what you receive in blessing is equal to uh, what you put out in blessing. And it doesn't always work that way. I mean, sometimes you're outputting, 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 you feel like there's nothing coming back in, but then there's this real, humble moment when you realize that you're being invested into by your community as well. It, we're not meant to be some kind of dive bomb in fix things, make sure that everything looks churchy and then, you know, leave. It's to exist again, very much the same way that we do within the church through our highs, our lows, um, our disputes, our conflicts, our humility, when we get it right, when we get it wrong. I mean, I got a, a neighbor who, we had a little tree conflict. That's, that's life, right? So what did I do? I'm like, well, I don't know what I want to do. I want to keep the tree and he doesn't want to keep the tree. So we went over and we worked it out. And then I'm like, well, how can I help you with your yard? How can I make this better? And, and to try to build relationship, even in, in something that starts as conflict. And, and now can we be a blessing to each other? I think if Christians really believe that they're the only ones blessing people, there's a, a huge level of deception, mm -hmm. you know, self-deception and, and a lot of arrogance that goes with it. So we have to be aware that as we go to bless, we're going to encounter the face of Jesus. Mm. And it's going to be encountered simply because those other people that we see are image bearers. They reflect God. We're all broken reflections, but nevertheless, we can see God even in them. Yeah, that's right. Very well said, Rob. I do want to move uh, forward to the theme of conciliation. And in recent years, I know that in addition to your time with Capstone, you spend time working with a conciliation ministry. Can you speak to that and, and what that work looks like? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it lines up with my story for certain, you know, having um, become a, a peacekeeper, I'll call it in my early years, because I don't think I was a peacemaker, but I was a peacekeeper then to see a church really turn on itself and not have the tools necessary to, to help them. I got passionate about trying to figure out a better way. 
And then it was a number of years ago, I met someone, uh, her name's Judy Dabbler, and met her uh, in a conciliation that I was part of what we call a care team. So not directly involved with the conflict, but walking with the, the parties in the conflict. And, and as I watched her work, I, I was just like, God, this is it. Like, th- this is what I've been missing and I want more of it. And so I approached Judy after and I said, you know, I need more of that. Help, help me with the path. And so she took me under her wing and mentored me. And um, I did my certification with ICC Peace, which is formerly Peacemakers, Peacemaker Ministry in the U.S., and started to travel with her and, and shadow her and, and be what's called a co-conciliator. When I heard the word conciliation, I didn't even know what it meant. I thought they spelt it wrong. You know, it's supposed to be an R-E in front yeah, of it. Yeah, reconciliation, but, yeah. But conciliation is actually the, the act of mediating conflict from a Christian perspective. I say from a Christian perspective because it's, its roots are New Testament roots. But there's a lot of other practices as well of other cultures, and it falls into the the category of alternative dispute resolution. So ADR, you might hear that from time to time. And so I got certified as a Christian mediator. And for the last couple of years, Karen, Dick, and myself uh, started a practice, Pathway Conciliation, where we work with families, churches, and Christian organizations who are kind of at the end of, of the road in conflict maybe even one step away from litigation. And we believe that this is where that, that household that I was talking about earlier in first Corinthians chapter six, where, where Paul says, you know, is there none of you wise enough to judge? What he's saying is there, is there nobody that can help you mediate? Mm-hmm. Um, why are you going to courts? Why aren't you going to the oikos? Why aren't you going to the household? And so Karen and I work with, yeah, l- largely Christian parties, but not entirely trying to help them move down a path of healing and Lord willing reconciliation doesn't always end in restoration. And sometimes it shouldn't, you know, there's situations that are unsafe or unwise to move back into, but wherever there's the possibility of reconciliation, that's where, that's where I find the gospel. I mean, the reason why Christ was sent is so that we might be reconciled and that for to have the same attitude as Christ, then, then we need to go and reconcile with one another. So uh, what we do is we work and, and help with storytelling, identifying issues, teaching techniques for communication, because even though we think we might know how to communicate, we often don't do it as well as we think we're doing it, and, and moving people towards a path of becoming peacemakers. And uh, that peacemaker, you find that in the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the peacemaker. What and, is the difference, Rob, between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper, as you talked about? Yeah, this is something I've kind of identified in my own life, where I thought I was a peacemaker. I was really a peacekeeper, meaning if I can just get people to feel a certain way. And, and this is where, you know, humor, as much as I love it, can become um, a way to manipulate people, or even trying to navigate conflict so that people just feel okay. You know what, let's just, let's agree to disagree or let's not talk about it, but we've had this major conflict that we can't seem to let go of. Uh, Peacekeepers try to keep it in that space so that it just doesn't blow up. Peacemakers go, actually, let's go deeper into that space. Let's get muddy. Let's put our boots on. Let's get dirty. And let's make sure that we deal with it the way that God's word would have us deal with it, which is by reconciling with one another. So a peacemaker is going to seek out reconciliation. A peace faker is just going to pretend like it's fine. You know, there's no issues, no problems. And a peacekeeper is just going to try to keep it the way it is so that nothing gets disrupted. Mm. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm sure people are listening and that that really resonates with them. But also there's an anxiety that might come up almost immediately when you talk about putting your boots on and digging in. Because as I understand it, you guys aren't, you're not just talking about like a counseling session here or there either. The work you do, you really dive right into the mess. Can you just talk about that? Yeah, yeah. It, it's not surface level stuff. We're not coming in and just saying, here's three things that you can do and your marriage should be fine. Uh, we're going through full family history. There's there's a practice called restorative justice, which is very story-based. And even in telling your story from start to finish, you start to identify both patterns, but also places of healing um, simply by by telling story. And most of us have gone through life having never been able to tell our story from start to finish. And so we spend anywhere between three and five days in a mediation. And it's usually about two days of just storytelling. And people will start and say, you know, I, I don't know what I'm going to say. You know, I, I, I don't have a story. Uh, Andrew, I've never had an issue with somebody not having a story. Mm-hmm. Because after about a day and a half, two days, when we finally finish, they're kind of like, well, I think I might have a few, a few more things. You know, like you, you start to discover things that you haven't unearthed. Even in this podcast, when you invited me, you kind of forced me to go through through my story. I say force, but of course you were very polite and you're asking. And I had to do an evaluation and I discovered things about myself, both, you know, positives and deficiencies just by telling story. And so that's a really powerful thing. And you'll notice when Jesus walked with his disciples, he used story all the time. Story resonates, uh, not only in how we receive it, but he'd also listen to story as people would share with them their story of, of their condition and their hurt. Um, even family origins, Jesus would, would listen. And, uh, Richard Osmer uses the phrase priestly listening, and I love the term, that we are to be priestly listeners, meaning for the purpose of healing, we are patient enough to put enough side, uh, time aside to be able to hear someone's story. So that's, that's a huge part of it. it. It's not a short process. It's not an easy one. It deconstructs a lot of walls that we've, we build up naturally. But at the end, the goal is not just that they would be reconciled. It's that they would be now infected by that peacemaking bug where they want more of, of that peacemaking aspect as well. I mean, everyone I think could use this to some degree as I've heard you talk about it. And, and I know that you see a, a great value in counseling too. And, and that there's definitely a place for that, but this idea, even as a parent, even in COVID again, this year, personally, I've been reflecting on and talking to so many people who, when stresses of life, which this year has brought forth, and again, parenting, having kids, marriage, I mean, jobs, there's so many things that if you get to a point where the stress and the fatigue is so prevalent, whatever was there, even if it was, as you said, very well taken care of for a long time, it will come out, it does come out. And you can't run forever. Some people are good at running. I think we do that as human beings, we develop an an ability to run or flee or cope. But my point is, I'm just, I'm seeing it in my own life and then seeing it in many others who, uh, and, I, and I've never, never before this year have I heard talk, people talk about, they say, man, maybe I should have gone for counseling before having kids. I've never heard that in my life before. Right. But, and I'm hearing it all the time now. And I'm actually starting to use that kind of language to people to say, if you're going to have a family, if that's the path that you're on, it's significant and it's it's incredible and it's full of joy and beauty and laughter. It's the best, but 
it does. It just brings out everything that's there yeah. and actually can be not just bad. It can, it can destroy you. It can destroy your family. And so that just comes to mind. And, and I guess I feel encouraged by the work you're doing. And if I'm honest, I feel a little bit discouraged or <laughs> it seems overwhelming because everyone, you know, is dealing with this kind of stuff. And yet so few people have the, the resources or the opportunity to get what you're, you know, what you guys are doing a week long thing. It's not cheap. It's, it's, it's time intensive, but what, I don't know. Can you comment on that? And, and is there hope in, in these stories? Oh, there, there certainly is. You know, one of the things about walking into the darkest places of people's lives it's that whole old adage that that's where the light shines brightest because I've seen things, Andrew, and, and I can't really say too much about it, but I've seen things that I did not have the faith to believe as far as human transformation goes. It's very easy. The older I get to become cynical if I let myself, but I've seen too much now. I, I've seen people heal, deal with issues that they've never dealt with. And yeah, not everybody is lined up to do conciliation, but what we can do as the church, and this is what I believe the church should do, is we should be in community with one another so that we can be that priestly listener, so that it doesn't necessarily need to be me. And, and yes, there's times when I think it gets kind of bad enough. If you think back to when Moses was judging all of Israel, and he would, he would sit there for like 14 hours a day or whatever it was, and they'd bring case after case after case after case, and his father-in-law showed up, and his father-in-law said, what are you doing? Like, you're killing yourself, and you're not going to help the people in the long run. If it's just you, you've made a mistake, but here's what you do. You take like 50 people who are going to be in charge of 100 people who are going to be, and, and you reproduce what you're doing right now. But when things are really complex, let's bring it to you, Moses. Let, you, you seem to be the one trained and gifted in this. And that's kind of how I picture this, is if we can reproduce peacemakers, not everybody has to go into the deepest, darkest places, because you know what? Your gifting might not be that. Um, you might not have, quite honestly, the, the ability to not carry it on as your own. And in that case, you don't want to be that liability. You don't want to put yourself in harm's way. But if you can be a part of that, even for your kids, like parents, sit down, let your kids tell their full story for a day. Let the, every night, this is why I'm a huge fan of the dinner table. And, and like I say, I do owe a lot of this to the Murphys and uh, what I experienced there. Talk with your kids and just listen, ask them good questions, help them process, and then do that for each other. Parents, adults, singles, grandparents, learn to listen. And when you learn to listen, you can start to carry each other's burdens and, and, and actually know what the issue is instead of you believing you think you know what the issue is. So yeah, there's times, Andrew, when I do think you need to go that professional route, but there's a lot of times when just us getting together and hearing each other's voice and listening with the purpose of listening, not with the purpose of waiting your turn to speak or to give your sage advice or your counsel, which they, there might be some sage advice and counsel, don't get me wrong, but leave it until the very end of that story. Listen to each other's stories and, and walk with each other. So it doesn't always need to be professional if we as the church pick up a priestly listening attitude. It just is on my, my mind here, just that if there are those listening right now who are in a place where they, yeah, they're like, yeah, there is major conflict in certain relationships I have and, I, and I'm not ready to go the professional route yet to reach out for help, but 
like, do you have any just quick tips on like, how, how do you even do that? How do you, how do you create a space in your family, whether it's your marriage or maybe with your kids or a, a business partner, how do you get to a place where you're sitting together and just being willing to open up to some of the obvious conflict that's there? Cause that even that seems like an impossible thing for people. Well, and this is where you need your teachers, right? Like, so if I were to throw a bunch of computer parts in front of you um, and say, you know, go ahead and build yourself a computer, you got the parts that you need. Based on what I've seen you running with your computer, your PC, it's pretty sad. So I'm guessing you don't know how to build a computer. <laughs> you actually need someone to say, let, let me show you how to build this computer and walk with you. And so um, I wouldn't advocate that you just go, oh, cool, just figure it out. No, find different resources. And, and there are lots of different resources. There's um, a book by Ken Sandy. I'll give you the small book, Resolving Everyday Conflict. is going to give you some of the tools to be able to put it together. That's a great book for two reasons. One, it deals with the heart issues of conflict. But the other is it's like 100 pages. If you want a more in-depth, he's also written one called The Peacemaker. Use that as a resource because honestly, we don't intuitively know how to resolve conflict because our human nature is so concerned with self-preservation. And it's by understanding that we need to do a self-examination, you know, that Matthew seven piece, if you ever want to, you know, take a look at, on what are the requirements before we go and confront someone, Matthew seven is it, but by having the right tools, Andrew, to build it, it's, it is important. So work hard at it. And you wouldn't expect someone to just be able to do any trade without first learning how to do it. And, working hard to make sure they do it. So parents, if you're struggling with your kids, work hard to figure out, you know, find those resources. Um, there's just a couple ones that we could use that Ken Sandy put out, but uh, really don't do it alone. This is what, again, why I believe church is so critical. Being a part of that church community is even helpful that you can go to someone else that's maybe further ahead in life than you, you know, or someone that you respect. Doesn't mean they have all the answers, but it's a starting place. So yeah, don't do it alone because doing it alone, it's too hard. I don't think we were to exist outside of community. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. And I know we've got comic books to read. So just want to, we'll, we'll fly through these last quick questions, kind of uh, lightning round, as it were. Let's do it. When do you feel closest to God, Rob? I feel closest to God when I'm in in-depth study of his word. And the reason why is because I see his story. I see his narrative. And I also know that it's my privilege to be able to take that narrative and share it with people who need to hear it. And so I think I find myself often alone in study with the knowledge that I won't be alone much longer. And I get to share this with people. And I get so pumped to be able to share that with people. Mm. Who are three people who have shaped your faith journey? Uh, well, Don Valentine was one really took me under his wing. Grandma is my youth pastor and, and he was a big part, um, in my early development, but my hero of heroes of the faith is, is my wife. If you don't know Becky, you're going to want to know her because, uh, honestly, she is, she's one of the godliest people I know. And most of the time when we think about you know, family, we get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly of family. And, and trust me, we've got some ugly on each other. That's just the way it works after 20 years of marriage, 21 years of marriage. 
but I've seen the consistent beauty of, of Christ exemplified in how she lives out her life. So she's my ultimate hero of the faith. Hmm. That's awesome. And lastly, for a younger person, that's maybe a young Rob Cripps who's saying, I want to work at a church one day. I want to be a pastor, maybe especially in a city. Although I guess any context is fine. What, what advice would you give to them? In 30 seconds. <laughs> in 30 seconds. Um, be dependent. Man, just be dependent on God because you're going to screw up a ton. You're going to fail. People are going to uh, pass you by. And, and, and don't get a chip on your shoulder, but be humbled by it and look at it as opportunity. And ultimately, if you, if you want a pastor and you're a young person in the city, you know, give me and Andrew Ironside a call because we want to see those kinds of people step up and, and be invested into. There is opportunity. And man, that's exciting. It's really exciting when I hear people that are, you know, cranked to see the church do something special mm. in our cities. Thank you. How can people get in touch, Rob, either with Capstone Church or the work you're doing with Pathway Conciliation? Well, if you want to go to pathwayconciliation.com, all of our information is there. You can just email us. I believe it's on our info page and how to contact us um, at the church. You can go to capstonetoronto.com. And again, all our, our information is there. And you can find us online every Sunday as well, doing our best to work with our current realities, but looking forward to the day when we can meet again. Definitely, definitely. And last thing, if people want to buy any of those comic books that you have, uh, how do they reach sold out, out, Andrew? I sold yeah. out. I okay. got to get some new inventory. So here's, here's the second part. If you have a comic collection from your childhood, just call me and I'll, I'll give you my personal number and, yeah. and make sure we can connect. And he's serious, <laughs> by the way, if you're listening and you have something in your basement, uh, give uh, Rob a call. He definitely wants to hear from you. So that's terribly self-serving Andrew. It's okay. It. It's okay. Well, I appreciate so much your time, Rob, and sharing a lot of your story and experience today. And I think, uh, I think people are really going to be encouraged by this and what you've had to say. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It was fun. All right. We'll see you soon.